0: Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we're unpacking comments by the head of the Jesuits about Pope Francis's critics. Then, we'll update you on the first case that's being investigated under the Vatican's new laws on sex abuse investigations. Finally, we'll talk about Pope Francis's dialogues with Eastern Catholics, and an important gift that he gave to Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew of the Eastern Orthodox Church. I'm Colleen Dulley. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New
1: York, Jerry. Good morning from Rome, uh, or good afternoon from Rome, uh, Colleen. It's afternoon here.
0: <laughs> How's it going?
1: Well, the weather is nice. It's got a little cooler, still sunny.
0: Mm -hmm. It's always uh, sunny in Rome, according to you. (laughs) So let's get started on our episode. Um, The first thing that I wanted to ask you about was... Last week on his trip to and from Africa, Pope Francis made some comments on the plane about his critics. He was saying that he's honored when Americans attack him, and he said that he's not afraid of schisms. He prays that they don't happen. We talked about this all last week, but now in a new interview, Arturo Sosa, who is the superior general of Pope Francis's religious order, the Jesuits, has added some of his own insights into these political divisions in the church. Um, so I wanted to get into these divisions in a second, but I think first we should step back and establish who Father Sosa is and why his words on this have weight. So, the Pope is a Jesuit, which means that Father Sosa is his superior, but also Francis is the Pope, which means he's above Father Sosa. How does this play out in their relationship? Is one obedient to the other? How does this work?
1: Yesterday, Father Sosa came to the foreign press Club in Rome. So he had journalists from uh, many, many countries and television, etc. And he was asked exactly the question you've asked. And uh, he made very clear, when a man, a Jesuit, has been appointed a bishop by the Pope, he is no longer subject to the Jesuit uh, superior.
0: Right. But Francis has kind of decided to hold on to his Jesuit identity.
1: Francis, in his heart, is been trained, grown up as a Jesuit. And so, obviously, he's been greatly influenced and greatly attracted by the teachings of Ignatius, the spiritual exercise. They've been a very important part of his own preparation for the papacy. But, of course, now the Jesuits are obedient to him.
0: So let's get on to what Father Suiza said in this question and answer session with the press about Pope Francis's critics. Um, He boils down this divide in the church to people who, as he says, want the church dreamed of by the Second Vatican Council and those who don't want it. And just a refresher for our listeners, the Second Vatican Council was the meeting of bishops and other religious leaders that took place in a few parts from 1962 to 1965, and this resulted in the new practices and ideas like uh, the priests facing the people and using vernacular languages and mass, an openness to new types of art and music in churches, and a call to dialogue with other religions and the world, and also this idea of a universal call to holiness, that lay people are just as holy as priests and religious. So, Jerry, Father Souza says that those criticizing Francis don't approve of the vision of the church that Vatican II laid out. And you said the same thing last week on the show. I'm wondering, you know, what specific parts of Vatican II do these critics oppose?
1: Well, you have to go back and remember, when the Second Vatican Council concluded in 1965 and Paul VI was pope, There were some who didn't quite agree with the teachings of Vatican II. They didn't agree with teachings on ecumenism, Mm -hmm. the relations with other Christian churches. They didn't agree with uh, the teachings on the relations to other religions, on the question of religious liberty, and on the question of uh, the liturgy. Now, when I say they, I'm not talking about the bishops inside the council. There was... Uh, maybe 2,000 of them, I think, uh, perhaps more, in St. Peter's Basilica in four sessions over those years. I I remember reading about the voting that very few of the final votes were against.
0: Right. I've read that most things were almost unanimous.
1: Yeah, they were almost unanimous. But the opposition came from outside. Got it. But one of those who opposed... Was was the Archbishop uh, Lefebvre, and we spoke about this last week.
0: Right. He started a schismatic group when he started ordaining his own bishops.
1: Yeah, but he had problems with the ecumenism. He had problems with the relations with other religions. He had problems with religious liberty, and and so the past fifty years since the end of Vatican II, more than fifty years, there have been people who have not liked some of the developments that have been taking place not like the direction that the Council was suggesting. And this has been especially the case in liturgy. Some people have wanted the more traditional liturgy, the pre-Vatican II liturgy, uh, but also in other areas. Some people have been uneasy.
0: So, Jerry, are these the same sticking points that we see now in the current criticisms of Pope Francis? Pope
1: Francis explained that it takes a long time to implement the teachings of a given council. That's the history of the church. So uh, there are still people who prefer the old-fashioned religion, if you wish, uh, not to quote Elmer Gantry, but uh, there are some people who do not like this opening out of the church. And th- this is one of the big things that Francis is is challenging. He's challenging the clericalism in the church, how the, the power is exercised, authority is exercised within the church. And he's advocating, in accordance with the Second Vatican Council, the synodal approach. We walk together, we work together, we, uh, and the, insisting very much that the priests, the bishops, the cardinals, the pope is there to serve the people.
0: So let's get back to uh, what else Father Sosa said in this interview. He said that part of the criticism that's directed at Francis right now is aimed at his emphasis on synodality in general and the Amazon Synod in in particular. So what is it about the Amazon Synod that bothers Francis' critics?
1: I think they are against, uh, I mean, some people speak about heresy in in this document.
0: That's the working document for the Amazon Synod, the one where all the plans are.
1: Yeah, on the working document for the Synod, some people are uneasy that the Synod may approve uh, the ordination or propose to the Pope, because the Synod cannot decide anything. It's a consultative body to the Pope. It cannot decide. It could get, uh, originally, when it was Paul VI set up the synod, he did envisage that at a certain point it could be given deliberative, in other words, decision-making power. Mm. But so far, no pope has given it decision-making power. Uh, Francis has taken what the synod has said and run with it and uh, developed it into post-Synodal teaching for the entire Church. So, wh- what is it that they object to in this Synod? Uh, it, it seems to me that there, you're talking about the question of, will the Synod propose to the Pope the possibility of ordaining married men from the indigenous communities for ministry in the Amazon region? Now, th- th- this is a church discipline. It's not doctrine, but people speak about doctrinal uh, errors. Th- this is not doctrinal. Then they, they're concerned about what the synod will suggest in terms of roles for women. Uh, again, uh, they, some people see, you know, see any opening to giving new roles to women as the pathway to the ordination of women. Francis has been very clear. He said John Paul II has said the final word on the ordination of women and it's no and it's very clear that Francis is not going this way. So I fail to understand some of the these critiques.
0: Yeah, it it sounds like what these critics are most worried about is even the openness to, you know, these questions about possibly changing uh, what ordination in the Amazon looks like, and uh, even what what roles women could have officially. Um, and it's just that openness that, that seems threatening. Is that accurate?
1: Yes, I, I think this is part of it. Let, let's be very clear about it. The opposition to Francis is small. It's a minority, but it have. Big megaphones, as I've said before. It gets a lot of visibility.
0: Um, one final thing that Father Souza mentioned in this QA and that was alluded to in the book that the French journalist gave the Pope on the Plane last week is this idea that Pope Francis' critics are trying to make sure that the next Pope is someone in line with their priorities. Now, when I hear this, it makes me wonder like, how much of a threat is this really? The way I see it is, you know, if Pope Francis has appointed more than half the cardinals who are eligible to elect the next pope, is it really possible that his critics would be able to swing the next election? Is this a real threat?
1: I think they vastly overrate their own possibilities. Having written a book on the last conclave, uh, and knowing also having followed the election of Benedict, uh, they really seem to think that the Holy Spirit is going to go in a long siesta at the Synod? (laughs) Uh, I I think they they really underestimate also the intelligence of the Cardinals who are participating. Mm. Do they really think that the Cardinals will be impressed by pressure groups? Remember, at the last Synod, at the last conclave rather, there was pressure from many of the groups uh, defending victims, survivors groups, groups like SNAP and others, Mm -hmm. who were saying this cardinal shouldn't participate, this cardinal should be removed, this cardinal shouldn't vote in the Senate. They had a, a list of, as I put in my book, a dirty dozen, 12 out of the 115 cardinals who would vote, they thought should not be allowed to participate. The Vatican's response was to say the cardinals, first of all, have a duty to vote, it's their that's one of the reasons why they're made cardinals is so they can exercise their vote. And, and secondly, they have to exercise in freedom. They cannot be coerced. The time of coercion is over.
0: Hmm. Uh, Jerry, I want to uh, follow up on that because I remember when we were talking about uh, the new cardinals and Pope Francis had named a few that are past the retirement age, which means they can't vote. Um, you were mentioning that you know some of these cardinals do have... Uh, a good bit of influence in the conclave. You said that we had seen that the last time. So it's not like they're totally free of influence either. The
1: the cardinals, they come together as a body of electors. They look to various sources, including the media, for information about given candidates. But at the end of the day, they pray. They spend a lot of time praying. They talk together together and the conversations aren't made public and they uh, arrive before god because you know when they carry forward their voting slip in the sistine chapel and stand in under the famous painting of michelangelo of the last judgment and they're saying you know that they call god to witness that the man they vote for is the one in whom in conscience they, they believe is the right man to lead the church today
0: Yeah, that was something that really struck me in your book was um, the role that the Holy Spirit plays in this, because I think that it's easy to boil down to just a numbers game. If our listeners want to learn more about uh, the different angles from which people often critique the Pope, America just published a really good in-depth analysis on this from a Spanish Jesuit. I will link to that in the description, and you can also find it at americamagazine.org. Jerry, for our next story, the new Vatican laws for investigating sexual abuse that were announced in May following the Vatican summit on sexual abuse are slowly being implemented. And now we know there's at least one case being investigated according to the new guidelines. Just to refresh our listeners, these new laws make metropolitan bishops, that is, the bishops who are head of the most important diocese or the largest diocese in a region, responsible for investigating any bishop in their region who is accused of abuse or cover up. So in this case that we know about, Bishop Bernard. Bernard Hebda of Minneapolis, St. Paul, will investigate allegations that Bishop Michael Heppner of Crookston, Minnesota, interfered with clerical sexual abuse investigations in his diocese. So, Jerry, the way that this works is that the Vatican has to tell a metropolitan bishop to investigate another bishop. He can't just decide to do it on his own. Why do we think that the Vatican chose to intervene now? Is this is this really the first case?
1: Well, first of all, this... Uh new law has come out in, in May. I think it came into force in June. Yes. So w- we're talking just about a few months. Uh, secondly, what happens is each diocese is to have uh, a place for where somebody can make a complaint, lodge an allegation. Once that allegation is, is deposited or is given to whatever person or group place, uh, then this has to be forwarded to the metropolitan, but it's also got to be forwarded to Rome.
0: Right. and all these systems for reporting this and sharing the information aren't all in place yet. so we're in kind of an interesting gray area of implementing these laws.
1: Well no no, no. it's it's an it's a kind of an implementation time. Mm-hmm. So what happens that the metropolitan bishop, archbishop when he gets the information, he has to make a decision. Is this really a credible allegation? And if he believes it's a credible allegation, he's got to inform Rome immediately and ask for permission to investigate. And they have 30 days to respond to him and, and give him instructions. Right. If he says it's not a credible allegation, then he has to explain why he thinks it's not. And Rome has to look at that as well. So, uh, so we're moving, in, in a way, we're moving fast because it's only a few months, and we don't know. Perhaps there are other cases in the pipeline that haven't been made public yet.
0: Right. So we don't know if this is really the first. It's the first we know about.
1: It's the first we know about, yes. Mm-hmm. But it's also an indication that the system is beginning to work.
0: Yeah. Um. I've seen some people asking why if... If the system is beginning to work, why Cardinal Dolan hasn't begun investigating Bishop Malone of Buffalo, who's kind of embroiled in his own scandal right now. And uh, the reason that he's given for not doing this is because he says that he hasn't gotten a mandate from the Vatican to, to do it yet.
1: Um well it, it that could mean that he has sent it to the Vatican is waiting for instructions. Right. And depends if he sent it at the end of August he wouldn't he wouldn't have his instructions yet.
0: Until the end of September, right. And like you said this is really fast for for Vatican time.
1: They're moving fast. The the process is meant to be rapid so that people are not left suffering.
0: Yeah. Jerry, one of the other things that was supposed to come down from the Vatican following the sexual abuse summit uh, was kind of a definitive handbook on how to establish these reporting systems and how to investigate sexual abuse. And we were expecting to get that over the summer, but it hasn't been published yet. Do you know whatever happened to it?
1: Yes, it hasn't been finalized yet because the Pope and his advisors are examining some aspects of it. They don't want to send out a handbook which has to be revised next year. So they want to send out a handbook with the developments in the legislation included in it. And one of the key points here that is blocking it in a way is the question over uh, the pontifical secrets. Should these be applied in terms of abuse cases?
0: What does that mean for our listeners?
1: It means that whether the information can be made public, or whether it has to be all remain secret. So in other words, if X accuses a priest or a bishop of abuse, will this whole accusation be kept under wraps, or will it be made known that this has happened, and this is what's happening now.
0: Right. And Pope Francis, if I remember correctly, called during that meeting for Pontifical Secrets to be gotten rid of.
1: Cardinal Supich did, Cardinal Marx did. Uh, I I think that there was a body of opinion, and and the Pope is for transparency. Got it. Because the Pope believes that you can't get out of this uh, mess that the Church is in without people being able to see what's happening. And being able to see that justice is done, that the victims have been listened to, that justice is done in their favor, and also that the accused has a proper defense as well in a case where he is in a problem.
0: Jared, that's a really great explanation of how that system works and how it's likely to be implemented. Um, There is one last thing that we should note with this story, which is that this morning, uh, on Tuesday, September 17th, an Australian court has confirmed that Cardinal Pell has filed his final appeal to the high court in Australia to overturn his sex offense convictions. last story today, the Pope met last week with bishops from a number of Eastern Catholic churches urging them to promote ecumenism with Orthodox churches. And he also gave ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew relics of St. Peter as a gift. Jerry, I want to ask you about the significance of the Pope's meeting with these bishops and this gift, but I think to understand the significance of that, we'll first need a refresher on how all these churches are related. So let's talk first about the Eastern Catholic Churches. These churches or rites are all Catholic and they're all in communion with the Pope. What does that mean? Does communion mean that the Pope's like in charge of them?
1: It means that they, yes, that they recognize the Pope as the, as the head of the Catholic Church. A lot of them will uh, elect their own bishops, and the the Vatican, the Pope, will confirm their election. I I think to understand it, for for many people, it's it's, it's a complex issue. The Orthodox Church split from the Catholic Church, they would say the Catholic Church split from them, in 1054. Since then, uh, they excommunicated each other, etc., and under Paul VI... He went to Jerusalem and met the Patriarch of Constantinople, Athenagoras, and they embraced uh, and they subsequently removed the excommunication, mutual excommunications. And that was the beginning of a new moment in the journey to reconstitute the unity of the church. There are 23 Eastern Catholic churches, about 18 million faithful. Some of them have never separated from Rome, such as the Maronite Church in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Others were part of the Orthodox churches that split from Rome, but part of those churches which split reunited with Rome.
0: How are the Eastern Catholic churches different from Roman Catholics? What's the distinction there?
1: There are several ways. First of all, that they have a more synodal way of government, many of them. Secondly, they have liturgies, which are not the Latin Roman Rite liturgy. They have their own rites. Thirdly, they have uh, a married clergy, most of them. They don't have married bishops, but they have married priests or married deacons. And uh, fourthly, they tend to focus uh, their liturgy and their prayer, they tend to focus more on the divinity of Christ, uh, whereas the... Latin Rite tend to focus a lot on the humanity. They both recognize the humanity and the divinity. That's not. But in the liturgy, you see there's a more mystical element frequently.
0: So, Jerry, let's get into what the Pope told the Eastern Rite bishops. Um, One of the things he said uh, was that, you know, uniformity and unity aren't the same thing.
1: This is also a message, not just for the Eastern churches, but also a, a broader message that Francis is giving to all the Orthodox churches, that if in God's plan the churches come together one day, they will each have their own traditional liturgies. They will not have to take the Roman right. They will not have to follow the Roman law. Mm-hmm. The, the, they will have their own traditions respected, etc. So Francis is saying diversity, unity in diversity, not uniformity.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of tension between the Eastern Catholic churches and the Orthodox churches.
1: Some of the tension has come because, as I said, originally some of the Eastern churches were part of the Orthodox church, but they split off and rejoined Rome. And so some of the Orthodox feel that in a way that they have uh, betrayed is too strong a word, but they have Separated themselves from the Orthodox, and uh, the Church of Rome at one stage saw these as bridge churches that they would help for the other Orthodox to rejoin Rome. Now the the vision of the humanism is much different, and Francis by giving the relics of Saint Peter, which were kept in the papal apartment, Paul VI had uh, had, had them kept in the in the papal apartment. The papal chapel. But it's a very strong gesture. Bartholomew is recognized in tradition as the first among equals of the Orthodox leaders. And it goes back to Paul VI and Patriarch Athenagoras. Apparently, the story started with Athenagoras, who said to Paul VI, if we have to wait for the theologians to resolve the problems, we'll be in, in heaven so it's perhaps the best thing is put them on an island now francis has taken this rather uh, much to heart and he he says we do ecumenism by doing not just by we carry on the theological dialogue the theological discussions etc to sort out these theological problems but we live we walk together, we work together. He said, when there's persecution of the churches, they don't ask, are you uh, Orthodox? Are you Catholic? Are you Methodist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you Anglican? Are you you, uh, Baptist? He said, they treat us as Christians and kill us as Christians. And he, he said, so we have an ecumenism of blood, He said, we can pray together, we have an ecumenism of prayer. And here is an ecumenism of gestures. He's given something that's very precious to Rome, the bones of St. Peter, and giving it to the first among equals of the Orthodox Church.
0: This uh, idea of... You know, the ecumenism of gesture and this being a continuation of that is a really good place for us to end the show. So thank you for explaining such a complex history so quickly on the show.
1: Well, I hope our listeners aren't confused by the end of our discussion <laughs> because it, it, it is, it's a fascinating subject uh, about which there is global ignorance.
0: All right, Jerry, I will chat with you next week.
1: Thank you, Colleen, and look forward to our next conversations.
0: All right. Bye. One last thing before we go. If you've learned something from listening to Inside the Vatican, I know I have, please take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show. Inside the Vatican is produced by American Media at our William J. Lowshirt studio in New York City. Our executive producer is Eloise Blondio. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineer is Tucker Redding. Inside the Vatican is Mixed by Noah Levinson. Our studio manager is J.R. Kronheim. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next week.